Hello everyone and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed the phenomenal artist Micheline Thomas and today we speak to the New York-based painter Anna Wayant. I am so excited for you to listen to it but before we get to this I am so delighted to say that this episode is supported by Ocular. Ocular provides online access to the best of contemporary art. Working with the world's leading galleries you can use Ocular to follow the most incredible artists like Anna Wayant. You can register to hear about their upcoming exhibitions exhibitions, view their artworks and read articles about them. If you want to stay on top of the contemporary art world, then go to ocular.com and follow the artists you love. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most exciting artists working in the world right now, Anna Wayant. From girls on the cusp of adolescence swept up in an eerie atmosphere to dolls' houses with doors only slightly ajar, the subjects of Wayant's paintings are nothing short of haunting, humorous, witty and tense. Rooted in a style that feels like a cross between old master painting and the unnerving perfection of Disney animations, Wayant's works feel at once familiar but starkly detached, leaving us to question if they are scenes from the real world the past or ones deep in our head. Often centred on a young girl, waiting, thinking, watching or screaming, who appears to be around the preteen and teenage years, described as the most frivolous and the most intense periods of human experience, Wayant's paintings are full of contradictions. Unrooted in place and time, they sit on a threshold between good and evil, absent and present, strength and vulnerability, being watched and watching, historic and the contemporary. And by grounding her work in the traditional genre of still life and portraits, genres only afforded to women who at the time in history were restricted to large-scale history painting before the 19th century, Anna Wayant allows us to question what we already know and don't know from these historic paintings or what we know and don't know about our female protagonist. Based in New York City and educated at RISD, Wayant, despite being 27, has already held shows to acclaim in the city. Last November, she took over Gagosian space with seven new works, one as large as nine feet tall. And I can't wait to find out more. Anna Wayant, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. I have to say, I listen to this podcast while I paint. And so it's so surreal to hear you talking about my work. Oh my God, that's amazing. I can't believe we accompany you <laughs> as you create your amazing paintings. Yeah, you keep me company in the studio. 
Amazing. So Anna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've wanted to speak to you for so long, having discovered your paintings only a couple of years back. And I was immediately struck by the perhaps familiarity of your work. Not only do they feel like they could be exhibited alongside the Dutch Golden Age masters and the Met, but actually it was the familiarity of mood, of gesture, of glances. It's like they have seen inside my head and then sort of come back the other side, almost laughing at us. I kind of love the dichotomy between how haunting and intense they are, but also how much humour they hold. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel in front of your paintings? I think that art as companionship is really powerful. And it has always made me feel less lonely when I'm alone. And so I think I would want people to not feel lonely with my work, to have some sort of connection like what you just spoke about. Yeah, I think art should be this place of solace, of of somewhere we can go to to feel less alone. I also think it's about when you look at a piece of art and it's about feeling understood. But I mentioned in the introduction, you know, to me, your paintings are also full of contradictions. They teeter between dreamlike scenes and tragicomic narratives. At what point in the scene do you want to depict or hope to convey? I love the description of them resembling dreamlike scenes. I think it depends on the piece, but the work tends to be really reactionary. So like after the meal or after the fight or conversation, I'm really interested in those quiet, awkward moments. I mean, they in a way reminded me of Cindy Sherman. I mean, obviously they're so different visually and aesthetically, but the sort of heightened tension that you have with the untitled film stills or something where you've just met this character and something's just happened before or after. I love Cindy Sherman, and she was one of the first contemporary artists that I was introduced to uh, while I was studying at RISD, and I thought they were just hypnotic. Yeah. And what is it about creating that tension, that drama that's, I mean, that's just happened sort of before or after? It's the unsaid moments or just the little glances that might go otherwise undetected or unrecognized. I think Cindy Sherman plays a lot with the gaze, obviously the viewer's gaze, but also the subject's gaze and these little glances. The eyes are, I think, a big part of her work. I have certain TV shows that I've watched so many times that I can just listen to now while I work and I get the gist of what's happening. And then when I go back and actually watch it, I realized how much I missed visually like the comedic tensions of a glance after delivering a funny line or something really small and subtle that's really powerful. And so how do you feel then creating paintings where there is this such deafening silence when you're in front of a painting in a way? I love that. I work with lots of audio while I'm actually creating, but um, I think the experience of receiving a painting or seeing a painting in silence and in solitude, like at a museum, is really powerful because it's just this visual connection. Yeah. I mean, in, in a way, when I'm looking at one of your works, like Buffet, for example, from a couple of years back, this gorgeous still life with these eggs that are neatly placed in this almost perfect wicker basket. And then you sort of look at the plate next to it and it's these fish and then you look a bit closer and suddenly you can see the fish's eyes and the teeth and it's as though they're sort of about to come out and bite you. And then on the other side is this knife that's been stuck in the bread, but so 
in a way, violently still, if that makes sense. Yeah. For that painting, I was thinking of Flemish still lifes and these references to femininity and fertility, like this overflowing basket of eggs and um, the plate of fish, and fish uh, tend to represent historically uh, fertility, but then you look at the fish and their piranha, which is sort of this symbol of danger or aggression, and same thing with the knife and the bread. So it's just taking these symbols of maybe what it means to be a woman or to be gentle and loving and productive, fruitful, and then sort of twisting it or turning it on its head a little bit. Yeah. And also, I just kind of like the midnightness of the background as well, because in a way, most of the painting is just black. Oh, I love the midnightness. So I work at night and I love that that creeps in. But in a way, it kind of reminds me of someone like Judith Leister or Franz Howes to an extent in the Dutch Golden Age, where actually it was this time when there was this rising merchant class. So paintings were going away from being religious subject matter and kind of focusing on these secular subjects. And I love how it's almost like you're invited into this interior space and it's often lit with this single candle source or something and this kind of night sky. But you're inside, but you know it's night outside, I guess. There's something so willing to receive about both of their works. And I think it's maybe because it isn't overly complicated or difficult. It doesn't exceed a level that alienates the viewers. You can see the chalice as what it is, or you can see it for what it symbolizes. And also, you can look at it and feel like you know the subjects and you know the setting. It isn't over-edited. It's not supposed to flatter the subjects. Yeah, I love that. I think what you're also alluding to, and I mean, your work is extremely popular. I remember when I first posted on Instagram, people went absolutely wild because in a way, what you're saying about this Dutch golden age, this ability to actually have quite a simplistic scene and that being able to sort of transcend so many people and cultures and backgrounds. And, you know, we're looking at these Dutch golden age works from 1630, 400 years on, yet they still translate because the core of it is almost this sort of human experience. Definitely, these objects of everyday life that we can all recognize. Definitely. I mean, what draws you to the old masters and the old master painting style? A few things. I think um, maybe the humor of like Franz Halls and also the color palette. I just love um, these sort of deep, dark midnight paintings, like you said. And... I also love really sculptural painting where you feel like you can kind of reach your hand around an apple and pick it up out of the painting. And I think that was something that they really prioritized. Totally, because it's almost like this illusion to this other world. It feels so in reach of us because it is these three-dimensional sculptural objects, yet it's completely untouchable. It's very inviting, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's totally fascinating. You're kind of expanding my mind about what still life is and actually I don't know it's it's such an interesting thing to kind of put possessions into a painting even when you've got possessions around you physically I think so too and I've noticed this more so recently but I can be looking at a scene like an image on my phone a still image and it's so much more 
captivating for some reason than like looking at just the image in front of me. And I'm not sure why that is, but that's just something that I find appealing, like a still, definite image rather than, I guess, reality. Yeah, but in a way, a still life or a still image, like a painting, is also kind of constantly moving in a strange way and was birthed from movement as well. So it is actually never still. But also I love this idea of paintings being this threshold to another world where it is almost perfection or idealization and actually it is more beautiful than reality in a way. You know, the way that someone's immortalized in paint is often going to be more favorable to how they actually look. Yeah, I think so. I mean... Maybe if the Duke is having his portrait commission, you know, the artist isn't <laughs> going to paint in the syphilis scars. Like, it's probably similar to what we see on Instagram, I guess. He's like heavily filtered and posed and edited still images from life. Yeah. I mean, there is something, this idea about perfection or, un- or kitschness almost or unattainability in old masters that does translate to animation or Disney-like movies or the media today. I mean, how do you feel about that? I agree. There was a really great exhibition last year at the Met. It, maybe you saw it uh, called Inspiring Walt Disney. So he was fascinated by European art, Rococo porcelain, tapestries, Fragonard paintings, furniture, but also just generally speaking, um, like we were saying, those old master paintings that we're referencing were highly edited images and made to portray the sitters or scenes in a specific flattering light. They're trying to portray this perfection that isn't maybe rooted in reality completely. I also think, I don't know if they have the the Fragonard's The Swing in the US, but it got recently restored here in London. And actually, when you really look at this work, as much as sort of frivolous and sort of pretty and whatever it is, there's also this kind of underlying sinisterness as well with it. Yeah, it's this sort of um, hidden gaze. Yeah. What draws you to this amalgamating these two worlds, the old masters, but also this kind of hyper animated uh, aesthetic as well? I think it's something that I've always been a little bit interested in, these sort of breaks in the norm with animation. Like I used to watch a TV show called SpongeBob SquarePants. (laughs) Are you familiar with it? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so once (laughs) in a while in the animation the people who were creating the show would kind of fuck with it a little bit and cut to uh, live action during the show and then flip back and forth. And I remember it being kind of uncomfortable and also appealing just this jump from real to surreal. They are quite alarming and you sometimes can't really even conjure yourself whether it is good or evil or absent or present or watched or being watched. Yeah, I like those complications. The idea that maybe you can be watching this figure in the painting and they're watching you back and complicating that interaction. I think what you're saying is so fascinating and also brings us back to this idea that we were talking about earlier with the idea of it being a still image as well because in a way a painting can hold so many complications almost 
frozen in a moment. Yeah. I think often the artist's intention, at least historically, is to sort of pack that still image full of what you're talking about, like a memento mori still life. It represents the idea that life is finite and you have to confront death in such a maybe small and insignificant object like an apple that has um, maybe like a brown spot and you can see it turning and starting to die, this like beautiful ripe fruit that is not going to live forever. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And I think that there is so much to unpack in a still life. And then also with portraiture or something, even that, I mean, I don't know how artists do it, but they can almost show you like a life that someone's lived. I remember there's this amazing Van Eyck portrait of Sofonis Banguasola, and she's about 93 or something in it. And I'll share it for the audience in the show notes because it's just extraordinary. Sofonis Banguasola was this extraordinary painter working in the 16th century and Van Eyck paints her as so wise and the sort of three-dimensionality of her glassy eyes shows how determined and fierce she was but also her wrinkles show a life so well lived and traveled definitely and even the garments or maybe the medals that someone is wearing it's just packed full of references to who they are and what they want themselves to represent totally what I find so fascinating with your work is how they are sort of, in a way, unrooted in place and time. Yet there is that familiarness, which I think is what draws me to them. I mean, would you agree? I love that description. And I sometimes think of them as these ephemeral creatures, like almost like a ghost or a spirit that could just sort of dissolve into thin air again. Like what you said, they're unrooted in place or time, but maybe have access to any place or time, nowhere and anywhere. I love that idea of the ephemerality of a figure because they could just be gone in a flash. But then at the same time, I'm really drawn to stonework and the weight of a figure or an object and the the sculptural presence. So I'm not quite sure how those go together. Well, it's kind of like those contradictions again, isn't it? It's kind of like weight of the figure, but then the sort of lightness of it as well. It's the contradiction of being there and being absent, being that kind of heavy stone permanence mm, and then definitely. also just fleetiness I also, as well. Um, I don't have an appreciation for settings or backgrounds yet, I guess. So there's no grounding imagery. It's not somebody sitting in like an Eames chair. It's just almost like objects in a void that could disappear. Yeah. I mean, you've only been painting like this so recently. And so it's so exciting to see where it will go. Thank you. But I'd love to go back to your beginnings as an artist. I mean, you were born in 1995 in Calgary in Canada. Um, was art always present in your life as a kid? I think yes, to some degree. Um, and over time, it's escalated to what it is now, which is something all-consuming. 
I played with a lot of dolls and I loved dolls and doll houses um, and furniture and miniatures. And I see it sort of as a form of art, these tiny sculptures um, have stayed with me and are really present in my work now. So that's one. And then also, um, I've always been really interested in color. I was a big drawer as a kid. I loved to draw. And did you ever see any art exhibitions or anything? I did. Um, my parents travel a lot, and so we would go to Europe and go to museums. Um, and I grew up with art in the house also. And my grandfather collected art, and his house was always just stuffed with art. Um, he loved masks, and I remember being really scared and intrigued by all of the masks, the carved masks in his house. So I think I think my childhood was pretty rich with art in ways. And when did you know that this was something that you wanted to pursue? That sort of came by process of elimination, mostly. I really love music, and I would have loved to do something musical, but... I'm a little bit stiff and uncoordinated. So music, uh, it wasn't for me. And then I kind of found art and it checked off all the boxes. I could be alone and I could sit down and chill out and listen to music. And also painting has always felt very playful to me. It's never felt like work. And so I really just fell in love with it in part because I didn't like anything else. Yeah. What do you think it is that painting gives you that allows you to go to this other place? I think it gives me a lot of things. I think it gives me company when I want to be alone. Um, It's an outlet. I can work through these ideas that are maybe a jumble of noise in my head and I can sort of sort through them and put them on a surface and organize all these stray thoughts. And I just can't imagine not doing it. It gives me purpose, even though it's the act of painting, the way that I work and what I create is a little bit, I think, selfish and frivolous. Like it's a very unnecessary act. I to- I mean <laughs> I mean I totally disagree because I think your painting gives the audience so much and I think it's, it's a funny thing isn't it this kind of idea of I wouldn't even know if I call it confidence in what people do or this idea of kind of selfishness and the arts and how we have to constantly be you know active or something like that and what's amazing about painting is that your paintings can also be company to other people and that can provide so much and people can find so much. People can have a laugh with it. Paintings can do so much to people. They can make other people feel less alone. Thank you. That's so sweet of you to say. <laughs> so you had this sort of quite traditional, I guess, would visit sort of traditional art museums and everything. And then you attended RISD between 2013 and 17. And it was here where you received your BFA in painting. I'm aware that in your second year, you saw this exhibition called She, Picturing Women at the Turn of the 21st Century at Brown University. I mean, tell us about 
that moment earlier on in the episode, you told us that you saw Cindy Sherman when you were younger. I mean, what effect did seeing contemporary art have on you? It was really a formative moment and show for me. It was the first time I had seen John Kern's work. I was familiar with Jenny Savile's work, but it was the first time I saw it in person and could appreciate the scale of it. And it was just like a magnet for me. I kept going back and it kind of took the lid off my box. It was just so exciting and so cool to see all this awesome work that was being made while I was alive and while I was making my own work. What was it like seeing John Curran's painting for the first time? Oh, magical. It was so special. The painting was a woman who was standing in this man's shadow, and it was on this beautiful European landscape um, with these bright clouds. And the setting was so idyllic, like you could almost hear the chirping birds. It was like a Disney movie. And then it was this really fucked up scene and interaction between these two people. And the woman had these massive tits and the guy had like a 70s beard. It was almost like two characters from a porno had just walked onto the set of Snow White. I thought it was so funny (laughs) and so wrong and so beautifully painted. And what about Lucia Scavage? Because I'm aware that you also saw her work there. And that too was great. I mean, the whole show was awesome, but I think the scale was really inviting. It was almost life-size. And then the scene was so uninviting. I saw it and I was like, I really want to be in this conversation. And so I started making work. I was already really drawn to figurative work. Um, I really loved Lucian Freud's work, but um, this show sort of introduced the comedic relief of painting, and I just thought that I wanted to be part of it. I love that, but I think what I also love about your work is the fact that you elevate this subject or this genre or this age group of kind of preteen to teen. And in a way, you know, as a 29-year-old woman, I still have that person inside of me. And it kind of makes me feel seen. And, you know, so much of the time in painting, it's so much of of adults. And sometimes, especially young girls, like, aren't taken seriously. And I love this idea that you've really investigated this. Because we carry that teenage self with us throughout our whole life. I remember being 14. It's never going to leave me. What led you to become sort of fascinated with painting these women and girls in this threshold when there's so much kind of angst and anxiety? Well, I had just left home for the first time and my childhood was really consistent. And I think of it as this very consistent, lovely chunk of time where I lived in the same house and I grew up with the same friends and I went to the same school. So it all sort of blurred together as this one piece. And then I left that and I moved to a new country and a new school and I suddenly had new friends and a new culture. And so 
I was reflecting on that period of time that I had just left. And I was, I guess, thinking back to experiences that I maybe hadn't stopped to process earlier. And I sort of stopped at tweenhood. And I thought it was a really interesting moment in my life and in other people's lives just because it's so confusing and complicated and messy and emotional and there's so much pressure to be kind of empowered and to establish oneself as an individual you know when you're a teenager and you're all of a sudden presented with this insincere independence I thought it was something that I wanted to chew on a little bit more. And so I started making work about it. And did you start with your own experiences? I did. And also absorbing or reflecting on media, my friends' experiences, my own experiences, probably mostly. And then in spring 2018, you moved to New York City. And I'm aware that you were rejected by graduate school, but this resulted actually in a time that I've loved to you describe it as your 20-year-old blues because, oh my God, like when you get a rejection from something early on in age, I mean, it affects you so much. It kind of never leaves you in a way, not that it gets any easier. But during this time, I'm aware you worked as an assistant for an artist and would paint alone at night. And I love this quote that you once said, you said, the biggest impact, I think just being alone and knowing that whatever I painted, I was going to put under my bed and feel no pressure. And I completely love that because it's this idea of almost sort of stealing time to paint or to write or to work on whatever you want to because you have no pressure. It was a really incredible time in my life where there was no pressure in the sense that if I made work, I didn't have to bring it into studio the next day and show my class and get critiqued on it and get feedback. And I didn't have to justify anything I was doing. So I felt this freedom in my work. And then also I was feeling the pressure of just like life and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I, like you said, I didn't get into grad school. And, you know, when you're 21, everything feels like the end of the world. And so I was just really lost and confused. And I think that rawness led into my work and I look at that work and I just now I feel for that girl who was just so scared but I was also having a lot of fun in my personal life because I was in my 20s and I had just moved to New York with some of my friends and so it was a really complex time I think professionally I thought I was fucked and then personally, I was like, this is just the time of my life. And what is it about making throughout the night that you're drawn to as well? Um, the quietness. At night, everything is a little bit more quiet and still. It's just this bubble of time that I find when I'm in it, I'm really productive and I can think clearly. 
do you think that working throughout the night filters into your work at all? I do because I use synthetic light sources in, in other ways too, but just aesthetically, I think you can see that bright contrast of these fluorescent lights and then the background is just darkness. Because from an outsider perspective, I guess, once you told me you work throughout the night, it kind of all makes sense. And in a way, it is this kind of time as a woman that you can steal time. I love working on a Sunday because it's my time and no one can take it from me. And I think the women in your painting or girls, they're also, there's some kind of like stolen moment that where although it's a tense scene, you're giving them this space. And then you kind of bring in this idea of the house, like the doll's house. And in a way, women have always been confined to these sort of interior spaces with childcare and everything, it's impossible. But it, during the night, it is when they're not looking after other people. That's so interesting that those are the times when you feel like you can be most productive because I think of them as being melancholic times that Sunday is the end of something, the end of the week. But I mean, this idea, your first ever solo exhibition at 56 Henry in 2019, uh, you called it Welcome to the Doll's House. And I love this idea of the house being also this symbol for this woman confined to the house, a bit like Jane Eyre or something, because they had nowhere else to go and they weren't allowed to sort of leave their kind of big English country houses or whatever in these Austen novels, that it was everything happened in the house. Yeah, that title, it comes from Todd Solondz's 1995 movie of the same name. It follows a middle school girl and it's about this wicked reality of growing up and growing up as, as a girl. The actual exhibition was set in a Madeline dollhouse that I played with as a child. And I thought of it as this glitch in time when in the middle of the night all of the dolls come to life and start to do things in the house that are a bit nefarious. Yeah, I love that. And this idea that the house is also this kind of prison as well, like this beautiful work that you made called Anatomy of a Small House. What I love about it as well is that it's all there for people. It's open up and you've got the fridge, you've got the table, you've got the chairs, you've got the bed, you've got the bath. But the bath, is is the bath slightly, the water's running it's over? It's overflowing, yeah. Oh my God, I've actually never noticed that before. And it was so much fun to paint. It was my first experience painting transparently. It's amazing because also in a way, the character of this painting becomes about absence. Yeah. Someone's just left the door open and it's like they're already there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Like the consequences of the overflowing bath and someone's going to have to deal with that. Someone's going to be in trouble. Someone's going to have to clean it yeah. up. It's, it's that moment after activity. Totally. I mean, do you think about a kind of story when you think about the work more broadly? Not so much like a linear story, but maybe more similar to a dream where ideas just sort of dissolve and blend into each other. And it, it's not linear or fully understandable, but there are moments in time where like an event takes place and then disappears. Mm, it's almost like fragments. Fragments, yeah. And... I'm fascinating this sort of autobiographical aspect of the paintings as well, because I love this idea of diary writing. You've spoken also about this autobiographical aspect of the paintings, but also how you see them as little paintings in your diary. So it's kind of difficult to have people reading them. 
How does it make you feel, people seeing these paintings and reading them? It's changed over time now, the way I feel about putting work out into the world, because there was a point of time when I was making work that I wasn't expecting anyone to see. Maybe I would make a specific painting and give it to a specific person, and it was a really intimate transaction. And all of the sudden, those little kind of love letters were at Christie's or Sotheby's, like they were put in this really public space that I hadn't planned for them to be seen that way. And so that was a little bit like maybe someone reading my diary. But over time, and now obviously, most of the work I make, I make it with the understanding that it's going to become public content. And so I think there's something actually lost in that self-consciousness that I guess maybe I lose some part of the intimacy of the work. But then at the same time, I work mostly alone and in my tiny apartment. And so it's an intimate process, no matter what the content is. Yeah. It's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, I write for myself and keep a very meticulous diary. And it's not for anyone, unless maybe I fall dead tomorrow and someone can find it. (laughs) And so I wanted to ask, do you also make for yourself? I don't make work for myself, but the act of making work is for myself, if that makes sense. But um, yeah, the idea of somebody reading... Like you said, reading your writing (laughs) after you're gone is just terrifying to me. And I always wonder when, like, I just saw the Hopper exhibition at the Whitney and there were pages of his diaries laid out on display. And I wonder how he would feel about that. Yeah, because it's so invasive. But in a way, there's something kind of charming about finding out more about someone after they've gone. Yeah, definitely. It's what they don't tell you directly yeah and so I think also what's fascinating about it is you kind of also play with women and women in the public sphere as well I love this work that you did uh, a couple of years ago based on the American model Anna Nicole Smith crying and she is this kind of archetypal beautiful gorgeous you know idealization of the western standards of beauty but obviously she was crying and so kind of what does it mean to present an image of a public figure crying especially when a woman upholds certain beauty standards i connected to that image because i think there's this brutal humor in it in that it became this viral meme and it's this woman who's falling apart under pressure. And it's something that a lot of society sort of laughed at and mocked. And Anna had a reality TV show and I've watched a few episodes of it. And it's really sad in that she's so lonely in the show and 
struggling with addiction and it's presented as this comedy and actually now thinking of it it makes me think of the idea of the fool in historical art this uh franz halls like the drunk guy laughing at a bar um and what our fascination is with the image of somebody falling apart or the idea of someone falling apart or the downfall of this great all-American beauty that's sort of crumbled into herself while we all watch. Yeah. I mean, even as a young woman or, you know, navigating the world, I think we're so conscious of that. People like to watch people fail. Yeah. I think it, it must be in our nature to be a little bit brutal to each other. And then building off that, I made this painting called Girl Crying at a Party that is supposed to be, or I thought of it as being sort of a funny painting to highlight this woman who is publicly in pain. And when I think of it now, (laughs) it seems so cruel. I've heard you say in the past, you know, I want the paintings to be funny, but I don't want them to be a joke. Yeah, exactly. And I think there are these big distinctions in that in a way that we can laugh at the sort of silliness of this whole thing. But at the same time, first of all, you're a very serious artist. This is a very serious painting. And this is also a very serious subject Mm -hmm. matter. It's no joke. I guess that's sort of the root of humor is pushing on the bruise. Yeah. And then in your most recent exhibition at Gagosian, Last Fall, Baby, It Ain't Over Till It's Over. Tell us about this. What was that like, sort of making work on an even grander scale for an even bigger audience? It was really exciting and really terrifying. Probably the biggest stage I've had. And I was really afraid to mess it up so afraid that I almost felt free where I was like I had this crippling anxiety to a point where I was like ah nothing even matters anymore for that show I was interested in the concept of the double or twinning image uh, specifically how it's used in entertainment such as circuses and also horror uh, like The Shining And the idea of identical twins historically representing internal struggle, like you said earlier, good and evil. And then I think also in entertainment, it can be used to literalize the idea that we're maybe not fully individual or in control, thinking of like Freud's idea about the shadow self. So a lot of the work in the show, the portraits and still lives used these double images. And then also on the flip side, I was really interested in the idea of a double image giving us comfort. For example, American Girl dolls. The idea was that you'd pick a doll and usually you'd pick a doll that looks like you and you could have them custom made to look like you, to have the same hair color and skin color and and dress them the way you would dress. And you could even buy the full-size versions of their outfits and accessories. So you could mimic them in a really full way. 
in that way was a comfort thing. You know, you had this almost like little mini you to accompany you through life. And that's comforting, I think, because you're in control of the doll. But then the idea of the doll then becoming conscious is we're back to horror. Mm. Amazing. Anna Wayant, thank you so much for this conversation. But as is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if there was a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? I would love to meet Clara Peters and I would love to watch her paint. I'm not sure what I'd say to her. I probably wouldn't say anything to her. I would just watch her. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. Oh my God, she'd be fascinating to meet. Anna Wayant, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists Podcast with the fantastic Anna Wayant. I am just in awe of everything she said and seeing old masters anew. This episode was edited by the brilliant Michaela Carmichael. And of course, if you have been enjoying these episodes, please do rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists Podcast with me, Katie Hessel.